Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. My name is Trent Kling, working for Layton Behind the Scenes. Coming up on this week's episode, we'll be joined by Tal Rotman, VP of Alliances and Partnerships at Namogu. Namogu is a company that is involved in a number of different e-commerce facets for retailers, basically surrounding the path to purchase. But specifically today, we'll be talking about what's called customer hijacking. It's a big issue, particularly in the e-commerce realm. It's something that not enough people talk about and will enjoy having Tal on the show to discuss their work in terms of prevention of customer hijacking as well. Additionally, in news, we'll talk about Dollar General's recent update for the 2022 year, and we'll look ahead to one of my favorite subjects, which is grocery, and more specifically, produce, as we get a 2022 update in terms of produce trends in grocery stores. A quick reminder that you can check us out on social media, at Retail Podcast, both Instagram, and Twitter. I believe Leighton uploaded some pictures my trip to the great northern parts of the U.S., more specifically parts bordering Lake Superior. Ashland, Wisconsin featured in one of the photo slides, as well as Duluth, Minnesota. Went to Duluth Trading Company in Duluth, Minnesota, because that's what you do when you visit there, so you can check that out on our social media feeds. Now let's launch right into our news segment. You know, we could have talked about GameStop really falling flat on earnings, coming under analyst criticism, but ultimately we really wanted to talk about Dollar General today because they released their earnings this week. We talked about Family Dollar and Dollar Tree a few weeks ago, but I think with Dollar General, it's not so much about their earnings numbers, which we will talk about, but the look ahead to 2022 where they're planning on putting that CapEx, because you're looking at a retailer that has been focused on brick-and-mortar growth, that is focused on reinvestment in their stores. I think we can learn a lot about the overall retail landscape of the U.S. and where things are going by looking at Dollar General's update. And it was a pretty slow retail news week, but a couple of things that we were wondering about coming into Dollar General's look forward, where do they see brick-and-mortar expansion coming in during this coming year? Is their focus going to be on expansion maybe south of the border? They had mentioned growing the number of Mexico stores in their portfolio. What type of traffic are they seeing towards their $1 price point products with Dollar Tree's price increases? And moreover, what are they doing with Pop Shelf? What have they learned from Pop Shelf? What are their plans there? So in terms of their fourth quarter earnings, which they did provide an update on, on the bottom line front, they narrowly beat analyst estimates of earnings per share of $2.56. They beat those estimates by one penny. Again, more interested in their general outlook, but we should still briefly discuss their fourth quarter. They actually tracked backwards in terms of comps, where competitor family dollars saw a comp increase of 1.7% in their fourth quarter. Dollar General was down 1.4% on the comps front for their own fourth quarter. And this wasn't out of character For 2021, Dollar General is cycling high comps from last year, but one could also argue that because they didn't raise quite as many prices in response to inflation, at least according to Dollar General's leadership, 
maybe they lost out on some incremental dollar increases in terms of sales during the back half of 2021. Two-year stack comps do see an increase of 11.3%, and this did compare favorably to Family Dollar's own two-year stack increase of 9.8%. What is interesting is that they gave specific two-year basket size details. They said at the end of 2021, their average basket size was about $16 and six items per basket, where it was around $13 and five items per basket at the end of 2019. So the basket size there really drives home the fact that they are more or less a glorified convenience store or glorified variety store, if you will. You don't see a ton of items in their basket size, but they said, look, this means two things. One is you do see some inflationary impacts in terms of prices versus two years ago. But the second thing is customers have 20% more product in their cart when they leave our store than they had two years ago. So seeing this as a net positive. And as far as the net sales increase is concerned for Dollar General, it did come in up 2.8%. That owes entirely to those new store openings that we always talk about with DG outstripping those comp declines. As a result of comps deleveraging on a per store basis, profit advantages from last year, like rent costs, for example, kind of went down. So their operating profit declined 8.7%, pretty close to prior quarters that we've seen so far in 2021. And again, roughly in line with what they were expecting, with what analysts were generally expecting as well. Other issues that hindered their bottom line included those increased product costs due to inflation, increased freight costs, every retailer is talking about it, and also similar to other retailers, a product mix that leaned more into consumables. Consumables, of course, hold a lower margin in general than other merchandise. And part of this is due to overall momentum in consumables and their continued emphasis on DG Fresh. But part of it is also due to lapping a huge year in non-consumables for them. In 2020, non-consumable purchases were up anywhere between 26 to 28% during those quarters. So the fact that they were lapping a huge year in non-consumables, you kind of figured those sales would tail back as an overall share of Dollar General sales, leading consumables to take a bit more charge and as a result, deteriorating those margins somewhat. But they did counter this with a slight decline in selling general and administrative expenses as a percentage of sales. It's driven by many of the same things that people have talked about. Fewer COVID costs, less incentive compensation to their employees, and also lower weather-related expenses. Now, although sales numbers don't appear great on the surface, leadership wasn't expecting anything too positive for the quarter given the macro factors at play and given cycling that big 2020 year. Todd Vossos, the CEO in prepared remarks, was quick to emphasize their brick and mortar expansion, noting that the fourth quarter saw them once again expand big time overall, open up their $18,000 general store. They completed their initial first phase DG Fresh rollout and they opened their 50th pop shelf location. By the way, they are up to 55 pop shelf locations in the U.S. thus far. And regarding inventory, they were actually able to increase inventory on a per store basis by the end of their 2021 fiscal year. Inventories on a cost basis increased 1.4% per store 
Now, due to increased cost, unit increases were a bit more slight. But now on to that outlook that we wanted to discuss for the coming year. They were upfront that uncertainty related to a number of factors, whether it's geopolitical conflict, COVID, supply chain, employment levels, and more. All of it makes 2022 a difficult year to forecast, but they do expect net sales increases to point northward once again after that somewhat uneven 2021. They project increases of 10% of net sales. Of that 10%, 2% is due to a 53rd week in the fiscal year. So you're really looking, if you're doing year-over-year comparisons, at about 8% net sales increases. Still, whether it's 8 or 10% you want to look at, that's going to far exceed the 1.4% that they saw in net sales increases in 2021. Helping drive these projected sales increases are comp expectations, which call for 2.5% growth. Store openings, as ever for Dollar General, would contribute also to that higher net income. They're projecting 2,980 real estate projects in total. The projects include 1,110 new store openings, 1,750 store remodels, and 120 relocations. Of the openings, 800 will be their newer 8,500 square foot format, as opposed to maybe that 9,100 square foot format that was pretty typical that you saw a lot of openings for about five years ago. Even today, you see quite a few of those 9,100 square foot stores opening. 10 years ago, you were looking at a lot of typical 8,000 square foot locations. So they've settled kind of on the lower end of that spectrum, particularly in rural markets. They're looking back towards a reduced square footage. And the number of relocations for them, you look at that 120 number, that's ticked down. The companies kind of work to optimize their real estate portfolio. They've done a lot of work over the last four to five years to do this, moved out of some of the older locations, moved into new, build the suits that can more easily accommodate DG Fresh. But at the same time, this has come at the cost of higher rent expenses. In some cases, they're paying as much as four times the rent that they were paying in some of the older locations. Again, one of the reasons we saw the comp sales decreases really impact the bottom line in 2020. 21, but ultimately you can see that they feel like they're pretty well optimized. Only 120 relocations on the map for this coming year. They feel as though most of the locations they're in, most of the stores they're in can support not only DG Fresh, but their other initiatives coming down the pike. Now, as for our curiosity about their expansion south of the border, they're continuing to be a bit more measured here. Their plans only call for 10 stores in Mexico by the end of 2022. So you're not seeing that exponential expansion of concept as what you see with Pop Shelf or as what we've seen with DG Fresh or what we'll see with their health initiatives, which we'll talk about here in a second. The year isn't expected to start off strong from a sales perspective, at least at Dollar General. They're forecasting a comp sales decline in the first quarter of 1% to 2%. Obviously, we're a good portion into the first quarter already. They see sales declining a little bit versus last year, and CFO John Garrett attributed this to cycling stimulus payments from 2021's first quarter, but also due to ongoing supply chain uncertainty, where you hear a lot of other retailers say, hey, we think we've seen the worst of supply chain uncertainty. Things are turning back around. Dollar General seeing a little bit more of the same when it comes to their supply chain. 
And part of this, certainly, you can attribute the declining sales to their hesitance to raise price points in particular areas. You have to wonder if analysts or investors don't begin to call for price increases. And in fact, Basso said that currently their price indexes relative to competitors remain in a beneficial spot. They again mentioned the 20% of their products with a $1 price point or less. They feel as though that is a major traffic driver and will continue to be going forward. But a point that Leighton made to me as we were kind of talking about this week's podcast is the fact that the last several Dollar General stores he's been in, and I can say the same thing for the Dollar General stores I've been in across multiple different markets, a lot of empty shelves there, which could speak to supply chain, but a lot of product in the back room and a lot of product out in the aisle, something that we talked about with Family Dollar and Dollar Tree. Now, Vasos noted that their staffing levels have returned to pre-COVID levels across stores and distribution centers. And again, seems notable because Family Dollar, Dollar Tree still having issues getting those staffing levels back up to where they had been. But again, we're seeing a lot of the similar stocking issues at Dollar General, maybe not to the same extent, but you do wonder how much these stocking issues are affecting their ability to maybe coax a little bit more sales out or get more of that product onto the shelves. And I'm not going to question Dollar General's leadership. I'm sure they know exactly where they need to be in terms of staffing levels, but it does cause one to wonder if they increase staffing levels by maybe just one to two people per store, if that would bring an outsized positive impact in terms of sales, or if they're content with just having shelves relatively empty, despite the fact that in many cases, there's merchandise just sitting on the floor in boxes waiting to be put onto the shelves. Well, in any case, we wanted to wrap up this story by just talking briefly about a number of their initiatives, because at any one time, Dollar General has several things in the fire. Momentum around their coolers seems to be continuing. This goes hand in hand with the DG Fresh rollout having been completed. They posted market share gains in frozen and refrigerated once again, that came off the back of high single-digit comps in the fourth quarter in that category. They did lose market share slightly in highly consumable categories overall, but did gain market share in frozen and refrigerated. And this is despite their own store-wide merchandise mix kind of tending more towards consumables. Good thing here in frozen and refrigerated. And there are certainly positives surrounding that cooler door traffic. I think Certainly okay to wonder if the positives outweigh the negatives from those increased energy costs to support the increase of cooler doors around their portfolio. But it is worth noting that the whole reason behind the DG Fresh rollout to their entire store base was to attempt to capture efficiencies from scale, especially in terms of product cost and reducing that product cost. They said that in all, frozen and refrigerated was a positive contributor to gross margin in 2021. So despite those increased energy costs, they are seeing it contribute positively to the margin front. So good news, at least on a corporate level, but also interesting to note that they continue to gain that refrigerated and frozen market share. One interesting note is that they do expect to return to historical rates of markdowns in 2022. We've heard quite a bit from analysts, others in retail, and even other retailers that markdown rates would continue to be fairly low in 2022, given the inflationary environment, given the fact that stores are attempting to preserve margins 
where they can given increased product costs. However, Dollar General seems to be planning to go the other way. Another interesting thing is that they're also planning to return to pre-pandemic levels of shrink as a percentage of sales. So whether that means theft, whether that means product deterioration, whether that means necessary markdowns because of -of out-of-date product, they see more shrink up ahead than what they've seen since the start of the pandemic. And speaking of shrink, historically a high area of shrink for retailers due to product deterioration more than theft has been produce. And this is an area that Dollar General actually has big plans for. A fringe benefit of their DG Fresh program is an overall greater refrigeration capacity in stores and in their distribution centers that handle the DG Fresh products. And they plan to leverage this in the year ahead by increasing the number of stores in their portfolio that carry fresh produce by around 50%. It's around 2,100 now. They want over 3,000 stores to carry fresh produce by the end of 2022. And this is going to be facilitated through an addition of another 65,000 cooler doors to their store base in 2022 an average of over 3.5 per store. And you can bet that some of those remodels that we talked about, the massive number of remodels that are going on, going to add those cooler doors, going to facilitate sales of fresh produce in certain markets. And finally, they gave a forecasted direction for their increased health options in store, something we previewed on a Looking Ahead segment back in 2021. Stores with the expanded health offerings for Dollar General, have about 30% more feet of selling space for health-related products, HBA, and over 400 more health-related SKUs per store. And at 2021's end, they had this type of planogram in around 1,200 stores. But as with some of their other initiatives, they plan on scaling this really, really quickly. They're looking for over 4,000 stores to have the increased healthcare offerings by 2022. And despite the fact that some of their rural stores or some of their more rural stores have a smaller square footprint, their focus for this initiative will continue to be on their rural stores. Plans to offer maybe services as well in time. Dollar General, I think, saw the benefit of health-related services that many other retailers were able to leverage during the course of the pandemic and saying, hey, we're in a lot of rural areas that no longer have local pharmacies where people have to go to other towns for their health products. Maybe you offer services, whether that's flu shots, whether that's a minute clinic type deal. So I think that's certainly a potential for Dollar General. Now, the question is, how willing will people be to search out healthcare services at a Dollar General? And also, do you have the square footage to make that work, especially with the focus on those smaller square footprints. Well, time will tell, but ultimately a lot of things going on for Dollar General. Also expect to see an expansion of that pop shelf concept, probably going to be looking at three figures in pop shelf stores at year's end. So between fresh produce, more cooler doors in their stores, the general Dollar General related expansion that we talk about, the health product expansion, and Pop Shelf, as well as their expansion south of the border, Dollar General, a lot of things going on here. And I think it goes beyond just throwing a bunch of spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks. They've obviously done tests with a number of different things, and particularly with Pop Shelf, they've been 
very, very diligent about making sure all their ducks are in a row there. So should be an interesting year, if nothing else, for 2022, whether or not their sales increase to their forecasted levels. It's going to be a year worth watching over the next, well, we've got about 10 and a half months left in their fiscal year coming up for Dollar General. Now, after this break, we'll be joined by Tal Rotman, once again, the VP of Alliances and Partnerships at Nomogu. We'll talk a little bit about customer hijacking, what it is, how it can be prevented, and some examples of customer hijacking, maybe in the wild, that you might see if you're browsing a retailer's website. I'm sure many of you could probably guess that I absolutely love information about the customer. We've had several interviews on this show about the customer in 2022, what consumers are thinking. And let me tell you about a podcast that really gets inside the mind of consumers. And in fact, that's what the podcast is named. So if you've ever wondered what exactly is going on in customers' minds, it's time to stop wondering. You can tune in to Inside the Mind for interviews with real shoppers in a variety of retail and consumer sectors, all mixed with analysis and insights. It's a great podcast with Greg Portell and Katie Thomas. Talks about what drives and inspires some of the planet's most fascinating consumer groups. A lot of lesser heard voices out there. For example, cosplayers. I think an interesting episode they had recently was about sneakerheads, and it went hand in hand with what we were talking about on the podcast during the first quarter of 2022, really with the dynamics of Nike maybe pulling some of their sales towards DTC channels and away from retailers like Foot Locker. But the sneakerhead interviews that they had on there, really, really fascinating in terms of what drives that particular brand of consumption and what those customers are seeking when they enter a retail store. Inside the Mind is produced by Carney, one of the original management consulting firms. They've also got various episodes out there about, say, dog lovers. Talk about pet retail being such a robust category. Men's skincare users. And as I mentioned, a show coming up, you can meet the cosplayers. What that looks like in terms of shopping for costumes, that's something I've never even thought about before. Where do cosplayers shop for costumes? Do they feel overlooked? by the traditional brands that are out there. It's a very, very fascinating podcast. So listen to brand new episodes of Carney's Inside the Mind. You can access it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And I promise you won't be let down. It's certainly become one of my favorite podcasts in my personal rotation. In 2022, there are a wide array of things like browser extensions and apps designed to purportedly help users save money while shopping online or, or maybe do other things. However, from a retailer's perspective, these extensions and apps sometimes have an adverse effect on the shopper experience. As a company, you might curate what you believe is the perfect customer journey, all to have it undone by what is termed customer hijacking. That's what we're going to talk about today. And here to help us unwrap this topic and discuss its prevention is Tal Rotman. He's the VP of Alliances and Partnerships at Nomogu. Tal, welcome. Hi there. Nice to meet you all. First, I was wondering if you could share a little bit about what Nomogu does as a company and your role there as well. 
Namogu has been around for give or take eight years now. And what we do is we actually prevent a really interesting phenomenon that's called customer journey hijacking. But in recent years, we've actually gone from that point solution to a platform which we call the digital journey continuity platform. And it really revolves around removing those obstacles or those negative experiences or experiences that e-commerce retailers had not intended to happen, as well as providing additional capabilities that will improve that journey for each and every visitor to your e-commerce site. And we do this in a number of different ways that I'm more than happy to kind of jump into. I myself run our alliances team. We actually span the globe from APAC all the way to North America. And we work with a variety of different types of partners, be they global system integrators like Infosys or Tata Consulting, or very large cloud providers like Microsoft, as well as different types of agencies that are doing, be it e-commerce development and helping companies with their MarTech stack, like Astound Commerce, or even some of the digital advertising firms, including Commission Junction in the affiliate space. And we work with all of these different types of firms, be they mom and pop agencies, in Malaysia to very large development firms in the UK. We work with them all in order to help our e-commerce retail customers to improve the digital journey and actually deliver the experience that they originally intended to do. So now that we know a little bit of the background here, it is ultimately about trying to preserve that customer journey, that frictionless, or at least as frictionless as possible, customer journey. Obviously, customer hijacking undoes some of that. So at a high level, for our audience's sake, what is customer hijacking or how can you define that? So customer hijacking is a term that we coined a good number of years ago. And really, it revolves around unintentional experiences that are happening browser side for visitors to primarily e-commerce journeys. Now, oftentimes, you know, we believe that these things are, you know, they're, they're natural that you would get some sort of interruption. The most common one really revolves around this experience of what we call the hijacker, where you have installed something on your browser, whether it was intentional or not, potentially during pre-COVID times when a lot more of us were actually flying and using public Wi-Fi at airports, which thankfully is improving now, or installing some sort of app or perhaps an extension on your browser. And you didn't really read the T's and C's. I certainly don't. I click next, next, next more often than not. And in that hidden inside the T's and C's, you know, you accepted quote unquote marketing software to be installed onto your browser. And that marketing software, you know, oftentimes is, you know, entirely legit, but what it may be doing is it may be trying to monetize its presence on your browser in quite a unique way. Now, this isn't malware, to be clear. Malware, you know, oftentimes, you know, is stealing people's credit card information or taking your personally identifiable information and selling it on to bad actors. That's not what this is. These guys are monetizing in a very different way. What they're doing, actually, is they're seeing what's the behavior of the visitor at that given moment while they're going down the journey. What are they interested in? Which products are they most resonating with? And then they're going to look in available ad networks 
and find the advertisements that are most likely going to do the thing that they care about, which is get the click. Now, the fact that they're on the browser allows them to inject that ad into the session. So, you know, the most common example that we like to give is, you know, if you're on Nike site, for example, and you're there and you're going to buy some, some running shoes, and suddenly you get an injection for an ad for Adidas shoes. Now, sometimes these ads can feel really native. They're really built cleverly. They might appear in the white space. You know, they might just really feel like a native ad. And people are so used to seeing those ads when they're on a publisher site or they're reading some you know, content on a blog. They're just so used to seeing those ads displayed in such a way that they feel that it's native or that it's a normal part of the experience. But of course, Nike's never advertising for Adidas, right? But people are so used to that experience that they might just get distracted and click and click away from the journey on that retailer site. This is customer hijacking. This is the experience that a visitor has where they might not even realize that they're doing it, but they're actually having their session or their journey hijacked away from the retailer. It's happening a lot. It's happening to approximately 15 to 25% of sessions. And we, you know, we're monitoring this data across all of our customers and across all the geographies, we see there's variance, there's variance between different verticals and sub verticals. You know, sometimes if you think about seasonality, we'll see a spike around Black Friday or in different geographies, you know, different holidays, which are also shopping holidays, you know, you might see a spike in that particular geography. It really does vary. The hijacking companies, these are not mom and pop shops. These are advanced technology companies. They're not sitting in a basement. They're actually, you know, really making millions of dollars off this business. And they are actually pretty advanced. And what they're doing is they're getting those clicks and monetizing their own presence, but they're actually impacting the retailer's experience and they're impacting their sales, right? Because if your visitors are clicking away, they're definitely not completing their conversion funnel and that's actually what Nomogu does. We actually help those retailers complete their conversion journey. So that's really where hijacking, you know, was born out of and where Nomogu's hijacking prevention solution really kind of derives out of. More recently, there's been a real explosion of other more legitimate forms of interruptions in the customer's you know, journey. And those revolve around shopping extensions that a lot of folks you know, are installing these days. There are many different types of shopping extensions. Now, that shopping extension you know, that provides you, you know, perhaps a discount code or perhaps provides you advice on where prices might be better, those are legitimate. The visitors intended to install those and they're not distracting. They're not giving you an advertisement necessarily for a competitive company, but they're not part of the journey that the retailer designed necessarily. And there's a lot of you know, emotive responses from retailers around those. Many think that they're great. They're a great way to improve conversion and to put uh, discount codes and actually persuade their customers to actually complete the journey in a positive way. And others actually have a completely opposite reaction, right? These are terrible. It feels a little bit like, you know, a racket. If we don't participate, then our traffic will be taken to our competitors' websites. And both of those positions, you know, are legitimate, 
if you don't have any data around what's going on. And that's where Nomogu's really started to expand our capabilities. Actually, you know, this information was always available, but we've actually started to expose this data to many of our partners and our customers inevitably to say, hey, look, if you actually look at the data for a particular shopping extension or a particular experience that a visitor's having, you might be able to find how to leverage these best, right? Maybe you'll find that a particular shopping extension is less efficient or less effective when it pops on the homepage versus the product page versus the jeans or the cart. And maybe you want to work with that shopping extension to say, hey, we would much appreciate if you could actually pop those messages a little bit further down the funnel. And it might be the inverse, right? Only the data will say. And working together with our data and our partners, you'd be able to look at that information, make a decision, run an experiment, measure using Nomogu, and then try again and try to make that experience a much more effective one. You may decide that some of them you know, are not what you want to be running on your site. And that's if the data tells you that that's the case, then great. Right. But you may also find that they're highly effective or you may want to try different ones right, and, and run different campaigns with different partners. So a couple of things there. First, a fantastic rundown of what customer hijacking is, also what it is not in terms of malware and that type of thing. And, and then the other thing is, I think it's a really great point that it's not always an adversarial relationship between the retailer and the software company. Sometimes it can be a mutually beneficial relationship there. But I do want to step back here because we know that because customer hijacking is based out of the user's browser, it's probably happening, as you mentioned, 15 to 25% of customers across the board. All retailers are probably experiencing this. And I'm kind of curious how retailers find out about it or find out just how excessive it is before they go to a firm like yours and say, hey, how do we go about maybe working with this company or fixing the problem here? So whenever we talk to folks, you know, a lot of them say, sure, yeah, I can imagine that happening, right? And so there is a little bit of healthy skepticism around this phenomenon because, you know, they may not have seen it themselves, but they can understand that it happens. I think the big question is to what degree, right? We have had quite funny responses. Sometimes, you know, people say, is this really happening in my geography? You know, I've had people say, is this happening in Canada or Texas or Spain? And it is, it's happening everywhere. The real question is to what degree and what's the impact? If it's happening to my visitors, you know, why do I even care? Why is it my responsibility to resolve this issue in the first place? You know, it's the visitor's problem, right? So the first thing that you can do is, you know, you can, we've had customers who've approached us and said, you know, we actually had complaints about it. What's this advertising, you know, happening, you know, and getting injected. You can search for that sort of stuff. A little bit of a needle in a haystack because you might not get, you know, nobody's going to say to you, I've been hijacked. So it's a little bit difficult to capture that when you're surveying and canvassing customers for that type of information. But, you know, what we often recommend is, you know, run a test, right? Nomogu's solution is very easy to deploy. It is a single line of JavaScript code, often called a tag, which makes it, you know, super, super easy to deploy. And once it's deployed, you can actually measure the amount of hijacking that's happening on your site. Nomogu actually, you know, can indicate and fire off that data into your analytics platform, whichever flavor of analytics platform you're using, and you can measure that specifically. You know, like I said, we see something like 15 to 25%, but at a given time, it might be more or less. 
but what we're offering is the opportunity to measure for it. How many sessions are actually experiencing this hijacking at a given time? And then in terms of the impact, what we can do is we can run a very simple A-B test. Our customers often have their own A-B testing tools. We can integrate with any flavor of A-B testing tool and just go ahead and run it. Run 50% of your visitors with Nomogu, 50% of your visitors without Nomogu, and you can actually measure for the impacts, the positive or negative impacts of actually preventing hijacking. So that's really kind of the way to measure and to ensure that you're actually, you know, going to improve your conversion. We typically see somewhere in the range of a one and a half to 5% conversion rate uplift when we prevent customer journey hijacking on our customer sites. Now, with regards to the more legitimate shopping extensions, you know, that is really just a matter of measuring for what's going on in your site with those shopping extensions. You know, which ones are running? Where are they firing? Those sorts of measurements are also really, really easy to gather and the impacts really depend on how you're going to leverage them. Now, something that I found interesting is also interruptions appear in different places, as you mentioned, as with the legitimate browser extensions designed to save shoppers money. But also you can divvy up the number of shoppers exposed to interruptions based on channel there as well. So what are some of the different channels that you see customers maybe experiencing those interruptions through? And then where are maybe the most disruptive interruptions, so to speak, in terms of where they appear on the site? So I would say that the channel question is a really great question. And, you know, it really kind of depends on the vertical and what sort of channels the particular customer is using. What we can do is we can identify where these particular interruptions are actually appearing in the journey. We can identify, be they, you know, appearing in the homepage or the landing page in the cart, or perhaps in the product description or category and really identify when not only are they actually appearing or where they're firing, but also do they exist at all, right? Do these shopping extensions exist at all, as well as did they get clicked and did that particular session actually end up in a conversion? There's a lot of great data that we can provide. Now, with regards to the hijackers themselves, we can provide a lot of really interesting information and break out, you know, which ones are more likely to appear in a mobile session versus a desktop session, or where did the traffic go to? Where would, had the visitor clicked, if we hadn't blocked it, we can actually show you what it would have looked like or which sites they would have been taken away to. Now, to be clear, you know, I gave you the Nike Adidas example, and you know, that's just as good as Coke Pepsi, right? Just to show you that experience. But you know, the site that the customers are being taken away to, that retailer, you know, didn't really know that that's happening. It's not like Adidas was targeting Nike or that, you know, Pepsi was targeting Coke and so on. That was actually just a natural manifestation of what the visitor was interested in at that given time. But we can show you like where that traffic would have gone to. What was most interesting to those visitors? The other thing is those hijacked visitors are actually really interesting. They are more likely to convert than a visitor who didn't have those sorts of things installed onto their browser. The data that we've recently run across a good number of our customers, we see something like two to three times the baseline conversion ratio 
for visitors who do actually experience hijacking. And we're actually able to highlight and segment those visitors and actually put create a gold or VIP segment out of them and actually run some additional campaigns, be it retargeting or email marketing automation, et cetera, around that. And that's, that's a really exciting new direction of the journey continuity platform. I think that's another very good point here. It's not as though one retailer is necessarily targeting another. Again, it's a it's a third party that might be routing those customers that are, again, very likely to convert away potentially from a site. So we've talked a little bit about diagnosis. We've talked a little bit about the dialogue you might have with a retailer kind of getting into the platform. On the back end, and again, for those of us that are out here aren't super tech savvy, How does the platform work once you install something to maybe block or inhibit those customer hijacking techniques? So the deployment is, you know, super easy. A single line of JavaScript code called a tag. Most uh, retailers will have e-commerce retailers will use some form of tag manager to deploy that tag. And that really makes it, you know, half an hour, no more than half an hour to deploy the tag. Now that tag is running on all of the pages that a visitor or a shopper will come to on that particular site. And what our tag does is it's actually downloading the Nemogu software onto the browser. And what it's doing from there is it's actually looking for inside the DOM, I won't get too technical, but inside the pipes of the browser, it's looking for hijackers, identifying them. And if we have chosen to block or inhibit them, then it will do so immediately. Now that's technology that we've had for some years and we've been doing it for a long time, but we're very familiar with, you know, the hijacking ecosystem and I able to identify those hijackers. Now what's unique about the Nemogu Valley proposition is Nemogu has been doing this for a long time, but we've got a lot of data today. We analyze more than a billion sessions, unique sessions per month. To be clear, as a side note, there is no PII. There's no personally identifiable information. So there's no concerns for CCPA or GDPR regulations there. We work with lots of financial institutions and, you know, have all the certifications for that. But what's unique about that is we're able to run on all those sessions and find new forms of hijackers. And that's actually a really interesting part of this, about this phenomenon, of this problem is that the hijackers, as I said, they're not small companies, they're, you know, they're big companies and they're always trying to avoid detection. There might be a new form of hijacker that comes out. We actually see either a new form or one that actually, you know, completely brand new one or one that actually morphed to try to avoid detection every four to six hours. And what Nemogu's solution actually does, our core solution is actually running on that big data set and looking for new forms of hijackers and actually flagging them up and preventing new forms of hijackers from impacting our customers on a daily basis, really. Now, the thing is that it just runs, right? There isn't any maintenance really required. It runs and it's actually just constantly preventing those hijackers from appearing. Again, we do provide some information about those hijackers and we can actually provide the underlying data that actually provides the value of this solution is, you know, super interesting. And we actually, you know, then go and we integrate some of those data points, as I mentioned, to retargeting or email marketing campaigns and so on. 
All right, so we've talked at length now about customer hijacking, some really great information, especially for a lot of us out there who might not be as familiar with the landscape. I did want to talk about one other thing in relation to that online customer journey that we've been speaking to to this point. I know you guys do a lot of work in intent-based promotion, increasing your amount of work as you go here. I was wondering if you could touch a bit on what this entails as far as the customer journey is concerned and how we might see those intent-based promotions maybe in the wild, so to speak, used by a retailer. 100%. So if you think about, you know, that hijacking experience, it's oftentimes is distracting. It sometimes, you know, maybe a discount code or it might be, you know, an advertisement for, you know, some toys that you were looking at for your kids. It's unintended. It's happening on the browser and you're not in control of that experience, especially, you know, if it's a, a discount code, you know, you have zero control over that experience. The flip side of that is if you actually were able to control what the experience was of the visitor with regards to their promotions. And there are solutions out there that actually, you know, will provide you the ability to pop up a promotion. But what Nomogu's recently brought to market about a year and a half ago, both through acquisition and integration to our core technology, is the ability to identify what is the intent of the visitor. So if I were to give you the problem statement, you know, when you go to an e-commerce website, the first thing that you're likely to see splat on the homepage is 20% off spring sale or 40% off winter sale, right? Oftentimes you're just going to get to the site and the first thing you're going to experience is a discount code. And we've only seen that exacerbated in the last couple of years during the COVID period. We're seeing a lot of brands that used to be a little bit higher end actually fall more into the discount brand because they're just trying to keep up with the Joneses when it comes to promotions and discounts. And it's a big problem because if you came in to a store and you knew exactly which pair of jeans you wanted to buy, you knew that you wanted them to be this particular size and boot cut and color, and you came into a store and you were walking to those pair of jeans and a shop assistant you know, stopped you in your tracks and say, would you like a discount? Well, you're definitely going to say yes, right? But you didn't need it. You didn't need it in order to go check out. That retailer in many ways has just kind of given away a lot of margin, right? And it's a problem that a lot of retailers are suffering from because of this particular recent phenomenon of, of heavy discounting and trying to keep up with everybody else, they're really kind of addicted to those discounts. And what Nomogu has actually brought is the ability to identify the intent of the visitor, right? That visitor actually knew what they were going to buy in that, you know, jeans example. Maybe you don't need to give them a discount straight off the bat. Maybe a little bit further down the journey, you know, they might exhibit behaviors that indicate, yes, you know, at this point we should give them a discount or maybe when they're in the checkout, you know, buy one, get one free or free shipping is the right thing to do. Nomogu actually identifies the intent of the visitor and fires the right incentive at the right moment, right? And that's actually quite unique. You know, some of the biggest e-commerce players in the world, you know, let the Amazons of the world, we're not going to sell this solution to, to Amazon. They've got thousands of machine learning specialists who are able to, you know, build this sort of thing for themselves. But what we're doing is we're democratizing this capability that Amazon already has and bringing it to mid-market and SMB customers and even some of the enterprise customers that, you know, don't have that army of machine learning folks to actually deliver a more personalized or correct experience when it comes to identifying intent and giving the right promotion at that moment. 
All right. So we've covered a lot as far as the customer journey is concerned, but I think this has been a fruitful discussion, especially as it pertains to the concept of customer hijacking and preventing that. Thank you so much, Tal, for taking the time and joining us here today. My pleasure. Thanks for your time, Trent. Marketing now more than ever is important for a retailer. You have to stand out in order to be part of your brand's growth. And how do you stand out? Well, there are a number of different ways and channels that you can try to stand out in marketing if you're a retailer. But one channel that some might be hesitant to try is influencer marketing. And there are a few different reasons for that. It's risky. Oftentimes it's difficult to measure. And hashtag paid understands that they're the number one rated influencer marketing platform on G2 crowd because they understand these potential pitfalls with influencer marketing and they don't operate with influencers. This is the big difference. Instead, hashtag paid uses creators, real quality content creators to help brands build their online reputation to help brands sell products, to help brands grow their marketing lists and so forth. And they make it easy for everyone out there to test this particular marketing channel. You can pick your audience and objectives. You can choose from a curated short list of, again, quality content creators, and then watch those creators make you and your marketing team look like geniuses. And they promise that you won't have to spend hours searching for the perfect influencer. You won't have to haggle with influencers about price. The influencers won't be messaging you months later asking for additional compensation. And you'll never be left in the dark on performance. The best part is it all starts at $499. And Retail Focus Podcast listeners get $500 worth of free working spend on your first campaign. You cannot beat that in terms of a marketing channel that honestly everyone should be looking at trying. So you can go to go.hashtagpaid.com slash retail. That's G-O dot H-A-S-H-T-A-G-P-A-I-D dot com slash retail and receive $500 off your first campaign. Once again, go.hashtagpaid.com slash retail. The link as always is in our show notes. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. We thank Tal for joining us here on the podcast. And once again, I can't stress it enough. This is really a concept in terms of customer hijacking that not enough people talk about, but it really should be of foremost focus for retailers out there, especially e-commerce retailers. Well, in our Looking Ahead segment this week, it's no surprise to people that one of my favorite retail topics is grocery. Beyond that, one of my favorite topics is produce. Absolutely love the produce section of the store, not only as a shopper, But also, I think the produce section of a store tells you a ton about the store's operations, and it also tells you a lot about consumers. And so, I look forward every year to the Packer rolling out their Fresh Trends guide, and they did exactly that with their 2022 guide this year. 
lot of trends discussed in this guide, 72 pages long. I really encourage you to go out, read it for yourself. You can simply just Google search the Packer Fresh Trends 2022 guide. It'll show up, or you can access it through Produce Market Guide, one of the favorite resources of the podcast. But the top headline for any of their Fresh Trends guides always going to be the top 20 fruits and vegetables. So they rank this not by sales, but by the percentage of customers purchasing a given product over the last 12 months. Bananas, no surprise, led the way. 63% of shoppers purchasing bananas in the last 12 months. Can't believe that's not higher. 62% for potatoes, 61% for tomatoes, and 57% for onions. But in terms of movement, you really see upward mobility from the berries, strawberries, blueberries, really kind of pushing their way up the charts. In fact, strawberries, the second most popular fruit in the store based off of this particular measurement. That's right, ahead of even apples. Strawberries came in, 56% of respondents say they purchased strawberries at the store in the last 12 months. Only 55% did the same for apples. Surprisingly, avocados all the way down at 38%. You'd think that number would be a little bit more. Blueberries came in at 41%. So we continue to see market share growth for the berries. Also, in terms of vegetables, you really see some growth from broccoli as well. 46% of customers purchasing fresh broccoli at the stores. And in comparison to, say, salad mix or lettuce, that's even a couple of percentage points higher than those. So a few surprises there, a few interesting things. Rounding out the list for both fruits and vegetables, by the way, plums and asparagus, respectively. Now, other trends mentioned in the report and really kind of the things I'm more looking ahead to over the next nine months is packaging. More people are buying prepackaged produce. And in this guide, 59% of customers that they surveyed said they plan to buy more prepackaged produce in the next 12 months. And to me, this goes back to something we talked about in the first segment, Dollar General really releasing more produce options in their stores and planning to roll more of that out. Well, the way you can do that beyond having scales, beyond having a number of things for bulk produce in stores is by having prepackaged produce, whether that's prepackaged Brussels sprouts or prepackaged apples. And we've all seen a greater number of prepackaged produce. Now, early on in the pandemic, this was because people didn't want to search and feel each individual produce item, but then it became more a play of convenience, just being able to go grab a three-pound bag of apples. Also, the packaging for this has become a little bit better than it used to be, a little bit more attractive than it used to be. Some retailers are putting their own brand, their own spin on things, but ultimately, I think in terms of looking ahead for this next year, I want to see where prepackaged produce really comes in in terms of its role in the fresh and produce sections. Also, for those that discontinued online grocery shopping in the next year, this is another interesting finding, I thought, in the produce guide. 47% said they discontinued online shopping because of the inability to interact with their produce, the inability to look at their produce, to feel their produce before purchasing it, That was the main reason they stopped, and that was a little bit higher than some of the other categories even, which included shopping around on price or being able to compare on price or just wanting to go to the actual physical store just as a means of getting out of the house. So I think this is very interesting, and this 
also is something that online retailers, particularly in grocery, are going to have to somehow navigate. Now, there are a number of developments in terms of platforms that can allow you to specify, for example, I want an unripe avocado or I want a ripe avocado. That would be the easiest example. But generally speaking, retailers have got to find a way to go above and beyond just the fact that online shopping for groceries is a convenience and ensure that customers are getting fresh produce every time and are getting the produce that they want every time. Maybe it's that optionality in there. And as we talked about in the interview segment a couple of weeks ago, it doesn't necessarily have to be real optionality. Just perceived optionality sometimes can drive customer traffic. And finally, I mean, there were a number of things I could talk about. I could probably talk for another 30 minutes about this guide. Like I said, 72 pages long. I read all 72 pages, enjoyed it. But really something I picked out was the fact that 12% said that going forward, they were planning on growing more of their own fruits and vegetables. I don't really care necessarily about the impact that this might have for grocery stores. I think produce sales for grocery stores will always be pretty robust, particularly coming out of the pandemic where more people kind of retaught themselves or maybe taught themselves for the first time how to cook, how to cook with raw ingredients, fewer prepared foods, and maybe more fresh foods there. But the reason I'm looking ahead here is if you have 12% saying they plan on growing more fruits and vegetables, this is good news potentially for spring seasonal retail in the home improvement sector. So retailers like Home Depot, Lowe's, Menards, Ace, and so forth, and local garden centers as well, could be looking at a pretty robust spring season in 2022. I know in most of the country, the spring season is already underway. We're still, oh, about a month where I'm at in Colorado from getting that spring season well and truly underway in terms of those gardening centers kicking things into high gear. But I'm curious to see just how this number extrapolates to the rest of the country if the subset that the Packer interviewed for this particular guide, if that's going to carry on to the rest of the country and we see those increases in garden centers throughout, and maybe if this can help some retailers to overcome falling sales for durable goods in terms of spring seasonal. So things like lawnmowers, other home yard care devices like weed whackers, for example, maybe the increased sales of those fruit and vegetable plants of bedding materials and so forth helps them to offset the sale of durable goods potentially falling in 2022. So I think a lot from this guide that can inform how we look at the coming year in terms of produce, but also in terms of what people have going on in their backyards, if of course they've got a backyard. Well, that'll do it for us here on the Retail Focus Podcast. A big thanks to Tal Rotman once again for joining us. A big thanks to our podcast partners, Inside the Mind, the podcast that gets inside the heads of certain customer groups and, of course, hashtag paid. Both of their links are in the show notes. For Leighton, behind the scenes, I'm Trent saying so long until next week. We'll be back with you approximately seven days from now. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.